Welcome to the Firing Log Podcast Edition. Today is November 9, 2006. My name is Odin Maxwell, and I run the Anagama-West website. Today I interviewed Steve Harrison. He's a wood fire potter from Australia, a remarkable potter who is very generous in his knowledge and experience. Steve has been working in pottery since the 60s, and I think the best way to describe him is he's a scientist. To give you an idea, he's currently firing work in a kiln that he built out of bricks he made from local materials. He fires clay in that kiln from local materials, glazed with local materials, fired or heated by wood from his local area. Clearly, to be able to do all of those different things takes a mass of experience and a wealth of knowledge, and he's will- and he's willing to share much of that. So more information can be had on my website in the blog section regarding this podcast entry. But for now, let's go to our interview. Steve, how did you get into pottery initially? Okay, well, um, when I was a child at school, I became interested in pottery. I, um, I wasn't academic at all, and so I decided that uh, perhaps I might try my hand at art, and I was always keen on drawing and painting as a child, so I did an art class and I enjoyed it, and uh, that's when I first saw the potter's wheel and had a go, and I was pretty much hooked from then on. And when I left school, uh, this is high school, I suppose you'd call it senior school over there, Um, when I left school I had decided I was going to be a potter, and so uh, the day after my last exam at high school, I started work in a pottery for another potter, uh, weighing up balls of clay, wedging, packing the kiln just a laborer, but it was fantastic. A little while ago you said when you were a child you decided that you wanted to do this. How old were you? Oh, I think um, I was probably in um, primary school when <clears throat> I was first digging up clay out of the gutter outside the house in the drain. Really? That young? Uh, yeah, sometime in my primary school. Yeah, that's uh, Well, we, you know, I, I don't know how other people live in other places, but um, where I grew up, uh, there wasn't much to do as a kid, and so we entertained ourselves, and um, this is back in the 60s. And we would, um, yeah, after rainy weather, the, um, the street had no, uh, wasn't surfaced with um, tar or gravel, you know, it was just a dirt road. Mm-hmm. And uh, when it rained, all the, the gutter down the side would become sort of sticky, and we'd dig out the clay and make things out of it. When you say in the 60s, how old are you? Uh, I'm 54 now. Okay. I'm I'm 37, so I guess I was born at the end of... Oh, no, I'm 38 now. I was born at the end of the 60s. But um, my parents were hippies. We always lived out in the country, and I, I know exactly what you mean by entertaining yourself. My entertainment was my dad's tools, blocks of wood, uh, fire, <laughs> stuff yeah, like sure. that. Yeah. Um, we didn't have TV until... We didn't have TV till I was like in the second grade or so. And even then, we didn't get any reception. We'd just get like red and black snow from Seattle with sound. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, used to, I used to go across the road to someone else's house to watch cartoons after school. And uh, the, uh, they were an older couple, Ethel. She would give me peanut butter and sugar sandwiches on white bread and Kool-Aid and uh, for compared to what I got in my hippie home, you know, yeah, all natural yeah. this and whole grain that, man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
Well, I have a little, a slightly similar story. My parents were, of course, not hippies. Um, I became the hippie, but uh, right. they, they were very keen on, um, particularly my mother did all the cooking. She was very keen on um, yeah, whole grain bread and um, uh-huh. organic things. And Yeah. Um, yeah it was, she had her own vegetable garden and um, produced all that sort of stuff. And, and we didn't have a car or a television until I was quite you know, into my high school years. Mm. It was so it's a very similar kind of background. Okay, so you started working for... Who, who did you start working for? What were you doing? Uh, there's a, a potter called Mike Pridmore, and uh, no one's really heard of him much, not even in Australia. He, he just works by himself out in the country very quietly. Uh, he only makes a few pots these days. He, uh, he grows plants and does um, reforestation, mm. revegetation. He's, um, well, I think what you call a greenie. Right. Uh, but he was a very nice guy, and... Um, he was patient and uh, explained things to me, and uh, and he paid me well. Um, this was in uh, let's see, this was in 1970, and I left school. People were getting jobs in say, if you went and got a job in a bank, that would be considered to be a good job. Okay. In those days. And they would get $25 a week, and uh, I got $10 a day working in this pottery as a labourer. How many so, days a week uh, did you work? Well, we worked seven days a week because it was the end of the year, coming up towards Christmas, and it was a bit of a bun rush, and um, so he wanted me every day. So I, he was a long way away on the other side of the city, so uh, I moved over there and slept on his veranda. <laughs> you were making, so you were making killer money, too. I was making good money. It was, it was no wonder I was so enthusiastic. It was fun, and I was well paid. Uh, but that only lasted for three months until after the Christmas period, and then... Um, he um, went up to. He earned enough money during that period to buy this block of land where he lives now, up in the country, and um, he moved up there. So uh, I thought, well, I need to find out really more about how this all works. It's okay, just sort of. And this is great fun, but um, I wanted to get a better training, and so I did, I uh, applied to go to art school, mm-hmm. and I went to the National Art School in Sydney. I got in, and um, uh, I stayed there for two years and did a ceramic certificate. And I enjoyed that immensely. Had good teachers, and um, it was a great place to study. So it's a full-time, two-year, five days a week ceramics course. You're, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to who didn't get into pottery more or less accidentally. Kind of more, sounds like you thought about it more beforehand. Most people are kind of like me, you know, they accidentally take something to fulfill an art credit and then get hooked. Yeah, well, it probably is a little accidental because in those days, in the late 60s, um, there wasn't such a thing really as a potter. There was, there was, um, I was told when I was at school that it was a, a lovely idea, and it, but it was an anachronism, you know, and potters all died out in the Middle Ages and um, <laughs> everything's made in factories now and you better get a real job so you should become an art teacher or... You know, I don't know, work in the bank, whatever. <laughs> real job, and then you do pottery as a hobby, and uh, so maybe becoming an art teacher and having pottery as a hobby that might be a, a you know the sort of solution they were they were suggesting. But I I didn't fancy that at all. I just wanted to have a go at it, and so I I looked around and I, I found I managed to ferret out you know potters that were working professionally, mm-hmm. and they were living in hovels and garrets in poverty, uh, but they were they were making beautiful things and they were happy about it, and it was just the beginning of that sort of you know new age that change. That happened in the late 60s, and so it was just the right time to get interested. And there were just enough people that I met that would uh, prepare to take me on and teach me things. 
How did you get by after you got out of school? Uh, well, well, when I was at art school, mm-hmm. I remained living at my parents' house and I had my kiln there. I built a kiln while I was um, in high school in their backyard. Uh, well, you couldn't buy a kiln. I mean, the only kilns that were available in those days were big industrial things for factories. And so right. they cost thousands of pounds. Uh, so, well, you just had to buy some fire bricks and um, take them home and stack them up. And I think about the 15th version of the pile of bricks that I assembled uh, was actually a kiln and not just a pile of bricks. <laughs> so my parents were very tolerant. Uh, particularly my mother, she encouraged me to be artistic. Let's, let's forget whatever my last question was. So tell me about, <laughs> your, tell me about your early kilns. Oh, well, they were fired with LP gas because I was told that was the way to do it. Uh-huh. And so um, I used to, they were made from very solid, heavy bricks, very dense bricks, and they took a lot of fuel. Sure. Uh, and uh, they weren't very good, but, but there was nothing really was known about it. So I just kind of bashed away, pulling them down and rebuilding them and trying again until I could get them to work. What, what, kinds, of, um, what kinds of kilns were you building? Oh, well, they were just little kilns. I guess they'd be, um, what would they be, eight cubic feet, like 600 mils cubed. Okay. 600 mil by 600 mil by 600 mil. That's two feet by two feet by two feet. Sure. That sort of size. And um, Updraft uh, two side? gas burners. Sorry? How, what was the draft? Updraft or down or side? Or? Oh, yeah, well, they were downdraft. Okay. Yeah, had the burners in the bottom, and um, the flue was also in the bottom, and they had a circular sort of flow of flame around, and the pots in the center, and then a little chimney up the back. Hmm. Um, yeah, that, it, as I say, they were all terrible, but eventually I got um, got one, one to sort of work reliably. I remember going into the art school one day and people would come in after the weekend and they'd, it would be great excitement if someone actually got to stoneware temperature in their kiln. <laughs> just, just achieving that sort of temperature was a, a technical breakthrough in those days. It was, no one really talked about the quality of the surfaces of the pots. They, they were just thrilled to actually get something to temperature. I I can understand that. I can understand that feeling, you know. Um, the uh, the initial, let's just make it work, and then later, let's make it good. But, you know, at some point, you can... Oh, well, we, we, we aspired to make really beautiful things, but it was beyond us. And yeah. so we just then, we settled for the next best, which was at least getting something fired. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's but that's that's a very important thing. You know, if your tools yeah. work... Then you can go on to making something beautiful. But if your tools don't work, um, you're really in a hard place. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a huge achievement just getting it to work, I think. It was. It was a breakthrough. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, did you start, when did you start doing um, wood-fired kilns? Because uh, I know you've got a lot oh. of experience in that. Yeah, well, I, um, I didn't think gas was, you know, kind of the right way to go. It was a bit high-tech, you know, and I thought, well, I'd read Leach's book. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, wood firing would be the, the sort of like the natural way to do it. Okay. And so I started um, stoking pieces of wood into my gas kiln over the top of the burners and getting a little bit of wood flash on the surface. And um, then I added a se- I pulled down the chimney and added a second chamber to my gas kiln and side stoked the second chamber. So I still fired the first chamber with gas and then I had a wood fired second chamber and. Um, I sort of migrated slowly into wood firing via that process until um, a few years later when I eventually built my my first complete wood kiln, which had no more use of any gas. So. When when did you build that one? Uh, that was built in 
the early 70s, probably 74, I think. Tell me, yeah. tell me about that kiln, the size okay, well, that and was, stuff. Um, that kiln, that was a three-chamber climbing kiln. Okay. And uh, by this stage, I'd finished at art school, and I'd uh, done my apprenticeship with a Japanese potter who was living in Sydney at the time. Uh, we could talk about that later. Um, yeah. And um, so I was, at, I was on my own. I decided to start my own workshop, and um, I had my partner, Janine King. I'd met her at art school, and um, we'd rented a, an old farmhouse out in the country, and we built this big climbing kiln. So many ways I want to go right now. First off, we, since you just mentioned it, we should talk about um, your internship with the Japanese potter. Okay, yeah. Well, um, after completing the course at the National Art School and getting my ceramic certificate, uh, while I was there, I had met uh, this potter called Shiga Shigeo. He'd come out from Japan. He was trained in Kyoto in the porcelain tradition. He'd worked um, in Tomimoto's workshop. Uh, and he came to Australia to work at a place called Sturt Workshops. It's a very well-known craft um, workshops here in, near where I live now, actually, mm. which is a fluke. And, uh, well, Shiga was brought out to work there with Les Blackborough when he ran the place in the 60s. And uh, he worked for a couple of years, and then um, he decided to stay on. And instead of going back to Japan, he moved up to Sydney and started his own workshop, and he was there for, I think, 10 years or so. Okay. And uh, I'd met him as a, he'd come to the art school to do demonstrations and lectures on an occasional basis, and uh, I'd met him then, and I liked him, and uh, so I asked him if he would uh, be interested in taking me on as an apprentice, and he said yes, the guy he had it was just leaving at the end of that year, and he'd be, he had a vacancy, and he'd be looking for somebody. So um, my teachers must have given me a reference or something, I suppose, I can't remember exactly, but um, uh, I got in, and um, I worked with him for 12 months. Wow. And he was doing wood firing? No. No, no. Okay. He was from the... Uh, he had uh, learnt when he was in Japan uh, before the Second World War. He'd learnt uh, in the wood fire tradition. Right. But, um, uh, when he came to Australia uh, and set up his own workshop in Sydney, he only used a gas kiln. Okay. Okay. Uh, in fact, he got... Because I'd done quite a few gas kilns by this stage, just referring back to what I was talking about mm -hmm. earlier... Um, I'd become quite good at figuring out how these little gas kilns worked, and so my friends would say, oh, Steve, you know, if I get all the bricks, will you come over and build one for me? And uh -huh. we'd have like a barbecue on a weekend and um, a few friends, and we'd build a kiln. And so I did this, and I, I did it, I don't know, ten times. I and then see. So eventually someone rang me up who I didn't know, and they said, oh, Steve, um, you know, I've got your number from your friend, blah, blah, and uh, I need a kiln, and I was wondering if you'd come and build it for me. And I said, look, I'm sorry, I couldn't. <laughs> because I have to make a living and it, I just can't do this. Sure. It takes too much time. And she said, oh, well, how about if I paid you? And I said, oh, that's a novel idea. Uh-huh. Uh, I've, got, I've got no idea how much to charge. I have to think about it. And um, I can't remember what the conclusion was, but she paid me something and I was happy to do it. And so I, right from the very beginning or very early on, I had this other job as a kiln builder. And... I think that might have got me the job with Shiga because he needed another kiln <laughs> just setting up a new studio. And so I spent a good part of that year um, building him a kiln. Well, that's, <laughs> that's legitimate. He got something he needed and, and you got something you needed from him. Yes, indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's, go back, let's go back to your first wood kiln. Um, you said it was three chambers? Yes. Um, if, have you got uh, my book, Australian Wood Firing? No, I, I, 
I've got the uh, laid-back wood firing. Laid-back, okay. Yeah, within the Australian wood firing, it's got photographs of it. Oh, okay. Um, okay. But, uh, yeah, basically it was um, it was sort of influenced from Leach's uh, drawings uh, in his book, of The Three-Chamber Kiln. Mm-hmm. But uh, instead of putting... Uh, he had an oil burner. Initially, he had a, a sort of an open firebox. Okay. A bit like a Dutch oven style, and then he had an oil burner in there. But... Um, about this time, Gwyn Hansen Piggott had come back. She's an Australian potter, internationally famous now. But okay. uh, um, she trained at Sturt Workshops that I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. with Ice McMeekin, who had trained with Cardew. Mm. And so she, when she'd finished her apprenticeship at Sturt, she went off to England and worked with Cardew. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she got, went to France, and uh, she built herself a three-chamber climbing kiln with a box fireboxes on it. Okay. So she came back to Australia. I heard some lectures of hers, and um, I actually, oh, I had a, I got a part-time job at the art school. Okay. Uh, I worked uh, for half a day, a morning a week, and um, teaching kiln building. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I heard her talk when she came back to Australia, and I thought that's a really cool design. I'll have a crack at that myself. So that was the first wood-fired kiln. It was sort of inspired from Gwyn Hanson Pickett's kiln in um, Le Grand Frigere uh, near Le Bourne in France. Okay. So was it like a like a uh, a climbing kiln but with a yes. bory yeah, box chamber, in the front? That's right. Three-chamber climbing kiln, pretty straightforward. Did you um, side, side stoke? Yes, yep. And at the front of the first chamber it had two bory boxes side by side at the front. Okay. Um, two throat arches going into the chamber and uh, I think it was a couple of hundred cubic feet. Wow, where did you get all the bricks? That's, oh, that's uh, huge. <laughs> I saw a, uh, an advert in the paper, and uh, somebody was closing down some big uh, steel factory, uh-huh. huge place, and uh, it, was being, it had been bought out by another company and closed down. And so I, I saw this ad for fire bricks, and I, I went along thinking that I might get some for these students at the art school where I was teaching, because they're always wanting to build their own kilns, and I was helping them do that, and there was always a need for bricks. So I went along and saw this fellow, and I said I could sell some of those bricks to my students uh, or get them to come and buy them off him. And he said, no, he wasn't interested in selling just 100 bricks. Sort of. He had um, 12,000 bricks um, wow. in these big industrial kilns, and he needed to get rid of them. They had to go quickly. And I said, well, I don't need 12,000 bricks. And he said, oh, yes, you do. He said, you know, <laughs> you, should, you should take them. And I said, no, look, I, I couldn't. And... And he said, oh, look, I'll make it worth your while. And I said, well, look, even at whatever the price was, you know, 10 cents a brick or something, um, I couldn't afford it. And, and he said, oh, but I'll, you know, I'll make it really cheap. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm sure I, I don't even know where to put them. And, uh, and he said, look, um, 200 bucks the lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll clean them, stack them on pallets, and have a forklift to load them on your truck. And I wow. just started shaking my head, thinking... Uh, like, where would I put 12,000 fibers? <laughs> uh, and while I was shaking my head, he thought I was somehow denying the price that he quoted, so he said, okay, 100 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started nodding. And I think, okay, yeah, okay, done. Holy cow. <laughs> so I started my career with 12,000 firebricks, and I've still got them. Wow. <laughs> I've carted them around with me wherever I've been. and um, I've That's still like got, 24 well, pallets of bricks. It, yes, it was a whole semi-trailer load. It was loaded two pallets <clears> high on both sides, the full length of this big semi-trailer I had to hire. And Holy I had to moly. get uh, eight friends, and it took us four hours to unstack them. <laughs> Great people. 
Yeah, uh, four hours, that seems like you guys are working hard and fast. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Just throwing them off on the ground. Wow. <laughs> um, somehow, <laughs> somehow I have no good brick deal karma. <laughs> <laughs> you and the last guy I talked to both. <laughs> well, it was just a fluke. I don't know how it happened. It just did happen, and um, when I've, I've, I've never needed to have another... Experience. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've still got them. I just keep. They were dense bricks, and I've been able to reuse them again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And um, I still have uh, quite a few thousand piled up there, which I haven't used. Wow. Uh, but most recently, I haven't been using them. I've been making my own fire bricks as part of my project to. Um, yeah, be, I, I be noticed as green as possible and try and sit very lightly on the earth. I noticed that. I noticed that picture of you making them. And I'm really interested in that. So how, how do you make bricks? Okay, well, I, when I've been looking around in my local area here to um, find felspar and clay and you know, various things to make pots with, um, I came across this uh, bauxite deposit. And bauxite so is... they make aluminum from. That's right. And it, 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 bauxite is usually little round brown marbles treacherous to walk over because there's like ball bearings okay it's little spheres i've never actually spheres. seen it it's um it, it occurs in tropical areas from very very heavy weathering of um basic rocks okay and so instead of turning into kaolin they um they turn into bauxite sometimes and so if it, even the silica gets leached out and all that's left is alumina and iron because of that particular weathering that occurs in these tropical mm. conditions this is millions of years ago of course mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when you see these great piles of marbles, <laughs> um, yeah, they extract this 50% iron and 50% alumina. So mm-hmm. they extract the alumina and make aluminium, the metal. And uh, I'm not sure what they do with the iron, but um, it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably a waste product, but they may send it to the steelworks. I don't know. But anyway, there's a deposit locally here, and they mine these little um, brown marbles for use in uh, roadworks as a kind of gravel. Really? And um, that seems off. That seems like a waste. Uh, well, it's only a little deposit locally, and uh, the local council use it for fixing roads because um, okay. it's you know it's easier than trying to take big pieces of rock and crush them up into <laughs> tiny pieces. <laughs> so um, uh, I went at the time when this pit was uh, exhausted, and right at the bottom of the pit, uh, as the bauxite. Uh, sort of ran out. It became more crumbly and friable, brown mm-hmm. sort of soil, and then it became a paler, creamy colour. And the, I said to this fellow, "Gee, if you dug a hole right down there, would would, you, would it get whiter and paler as it got right down? Because most clay deposits, you see, it's red up the top near the topsoil, mm-hmm. and then it's a kind of a mottled zone in the middle, like a yellow, and then white at the bottom, and then you get this, the the rock." Right. And I was thinking, well, underneath that, there might be some sort of kaolin. And he said, oh, there is. They had actually done a test bore and when they were first developing the pit, and there was a white, sort of a white bauxite or a white kaolin kind of material at the bottom. And so I said, well, how much would it cost for me to get your bulldozer to dig a hole there in the middle and, um, and I could, you know, get a, a little bit of that? And uh, he said he'd do it for me now. So um, <laughs> he called his son over and he got the bulldozer out and they shifted right to the very bottom centre of the pit they dug a big hole and sort of pushed up I don't know 10 tonnes of this white material <laughs> and then the front end loader picked up I suppose a bit over a tonne of it and dropped it in the back of my ute <laughs> I've got a sort of a you know Toyota one tonne utility okay 
and it's just kind of going to crunch and bounce and <laughs> hit the ground. And um, there was my, well, good, well, a really good ton of um, this material. So I brought it home and shoveled it out, and um, I've been using it to make bricks because it is a, a very high alumina material, but it has a lot of iron in it. It's not absolutely pure, but it's, it's, uh, it's okay. It's not the best, but it's okay. And so I had this material there, which was free. Um, and I told the, um, the fellow who owned the mine that I would get it analysed and give him the technical data as I worked through it, which I did. Mm-hmm. And he was completely disinterested hmm. in, in the, the technical information. All he wanted to know was, could he sell it to farmers to make dams out of it or something like that? <laughs> and I said, I don't think so. It's not that good. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I used this uh, poor-grade white porksite kaolin-like material and uh, I dry it out and I hammer mill it into a granulate kind of powder, sort of like you might imagine fire clay would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I mix that with uh, coffee grounds, okay, uh, which I get from a local cafe. They save them for me and I collect their coffee grounds at the end of each week and I spread those out and dry them. And I've done all sorts of tests with things like sawdust and sand, wood sanded powder and um, um, shredded paper, um, straw, grass, all sorts of things. And coffee grounds is ideal for making fire bricks. It's just the right granular texture to burn out and leave a tiny little speck of a hole, which is a good insulation. Um, anyway, so yeah, I mix um, the coffee grounds in and um, uh, also some grog, which is um, all from all the failed fire brick tests that I make. Whenever I make something that doesn't work, I just crush it up and I add that back in. Okay. And so I have a certain amount of my own grog, all my old wadding and... Um, I recycle wadding and setters and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that all gets crushed up and put back in, so it's a, it needs a little bit of grit to give it structure. Right. And um, so that's how I make fire bricks. I just simply make them like mud bricks. I mix up a, a liquid slop of clay, coffee, and grog, and I have a little mould, and I pat them in, just like making mud bricks. I let them dry in the sun, and then uh, I fire them in the kiln, pre-fire them. Not to really high temperatures, but... Um, Sometimes I fire them in the little test kiln, other times I pack them as like a bag wall in the wood kiln. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as they are some, somewhat pre-fired, it takes some of the shrinkage out of them. Right. And uh, when I had uh, 250 of them made, I built a little test kiln here. And um, that's been working really well this last, what, five years or so. Really? So the brick- how, how often do you fire the, the test kiln? Oh, it was, depends on what I'm doing. I don't fire that work regularly and fire regularly, but um, as I work up to a show, I can fire it uh, once a week, every week, um, because it's only a small kiln, so I, every firing is slightly different. And I, at the moment, I'm trying to research these local materials and make this 100% local product. Of, um, uh, one of them is a porcelain material, a petunce, mm-hmm. and uh, another one is a sort of a jet black guan body material. So this this test kiln is that what's that fired with? Uh, well I fire with uh, the wood that just grows around me here in the village. Um, my neighbor took down some pine trees recently and I um, paid to have them carted up here and I um, I cut them up and split them into things for the brew box. And the pieces that you're <laughs> firing and the pieces you're firing in the kiln you're making out of quay that you're digging locally. That's right yeah. So, so the idea of currently my way of working is to produce everything myself. I, I dig my own porcelain and um, 
uh, stoneware clay and I've made my own bricks and built my own kiln and I cut my own wood and I mill my own glazes from igneous rocks. So everything is uh, on site here. Everything, the fuel, but, uh, the kiln, the pieces, the glazes. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. I only, no, well, I, had, I, have, um, I must admit I am not 100%. Um, I haven't converted entirely yet. Okay. What, um, what, need, what's, what part's bentonite. not pure? What part's not the bentonite? Yeah, I can't oh, okay. get, I can't find bentonite locally. Okay. And some of these clay bodies, the the betons is basically just uh, bore milled igneous rock. It's um, it's like trying to throw with feldspar and water. Uh huh. <laughs> just not plastic enough. So um, I have to add some bentonite to make it throwable. And uh, and I, as yet I I can't find any bentonite here. But I'm I'm, I'm hopeful. But anyway, to get back to answering your question about the kiln, I. I, it's only a little kiln, and um, it takes about 100 pieces. And uh, I can pack it in one day and uh, brick it up. And uh, the pieces at the front in the firebox. Now, if you've got laid-back wood firing, you're familiar with the design I've uh, worked which worked out, which is um, I call it the extended throat brewery box. So it has the firebox and then a little top-loading area between the firebox and the kiln where you can put things in from the top. It has a lid over there. And then the standard kind of chambered area. Right. I think and people I, I put, people around here, I think, are calling those train kilns. Right. Yes. Yep. Well, this one has got a chamber as well. Not it's not just the throat. Oh, okay. But it has what I call an extended throat. It has a throat area which is big enough to pack pots in, top loading, and then it has a chamber after that before the chimney, the conventional chamber. So I get both kinds of work. I can put work right at the front, which gets contact with the charcoal and the the embers and it's quite hot and uh, you get a lot of ash there mm-hmm. and I put pots in there which are mostly unglazed um, raw pots or um, partially glazed pots and then further back I put more glazed ware and in the chamber I put the porcelain okay so I can I can fire it in one day I start at five o'clock in the morning and I finish about one o'clock at night and that gives me 20 hours that's so and, fast uh, that, that's long enough for me to get quite a nice ash deposit in those front pots because it's in a very concentrated area mm-hmm. and I get a very nice kind of flashed quality um, on the clay bodies in the chamber. It's very delicate and it suits the porcelain. There's an article of, of mine in um, this month's cer- uh, ceramic review uh, from in Britain. I'm really interested in, in these uh, throat kilns. Um. When did you start building those, and what gave you the idea about them? Okay, well, um, I started off with uh, that three-chamber climbing kiln, mm-hmm. and we worked with that for a few years, and then there was this huge forest fire, bushfire, and uh, burnt down our workshop. And uh, that was kind of the end of that. The, everything we wanted to, <laughs> everything we wanted to protect when the fire was coming we realized we only had a, a few minutes notice it was a very wow. hot day we smelt smoke and then embers started dropping out of the sky and it had only started a few miles to the um, to the west of us and it just picked up and roared with this hot wind and then the garden just burst into flames bushes were just igniting for no reason just embers landing in them and the wow. hot wind pushing it and so we realized we had to get out and um, we stuck everything that was precious in the kiln in the first chamber we just threw in things like the electric drill and the chainsaw and um, uh, those very fine chemical balance scales I used for glaze testing. Mm-hmm. We just pushed all that stuff into the chamber and we drove off and the street was on fire as we were leaving and we were driving out and the bushfire brigade were coming in. 
Scary. Down the other way of the road because we didn't have any equipment, no hoses, we didn't have any water. We lived out in the country, we only had rainwater tanks, you know. Right, okay. So there was no way we could fight the fire. So we just left and it burnt down. And So we, we rent, that was only a rented place. So we had found a place to live out in the country. And so we decided we'd move, we bought it and we moved down to where we are now in Balmoral Village here. How long did it take you to move all your bricks? <laughs> oh, yes, well, <laughs> we, we, we moved all of our personal possessions in one trip in our Volkswagen. Sure. Uh, we put the mattress on the roof racks and put all our clothes on the back seat and a few books and we left. But, uh, yeah, it took us uh, either eight or ten truckloads. Um, we hired a ten-ton truck and we made eight or ten trips to move the ball mill and the rock crusher and the bricks and the pottery wheels and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that was only after two or three years. I'd hate to think how many truckloads it would take now for me to move, having been here for 30 years now. Yeah, so, uh, well, we had this we had this kiln. Um, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it. Uh, we made some lovely things. It was um, a good sort of training for me to learn about wood firing. Mm-hmm. So when we came down here, I, built, I didn't want to build the same kiln again. I wanted to learn something else. So I, I built a, um, a round kiln, very much like Michael Cardew's. Okay. Only smaller. And uh, we used that for a few years. Uh, and then, tragically, there was another fire which burnt down our workshop, but fortunately not our house. Um, so that put us out of business for uh, a couple of years while we had to... We weren't insured, you see. Right. Uh, because we were you know, just living on brown rice and poverty and mm-hmm. making pots. So uh, I spent a couple of years working and making mud bricks and um, earning money and scrounging windows and things. So we eventually built another studio. And um, this time around, I decided I'd build an anagama. Okay. Because we'd, we'd done the brewery box thing twice, and uh, I built a lot of other small brewery box kilns um, for other potters and art schools around uh, Australia. And that's when the laid-back wood-firing book first emerged in 75 or so, because I built this little kiln for the National Art School, and it was very popular. It was just the right time, because in 75... There was the counterculture revolutions that sort of taken hold, and people were thinking about making pottery and wood firing pottery and going to the country and mm-hmm. that kind of, that sort of thing. So I think we printed 500 copies of the first edition of that, and they sold in 10 days or two weeks. Wow! <laughs> and I think they were they might have been 50 cents or one dollar. I can't remember exactly, but just at the cost we had. We got all the typesetting done by a friend, and uh, another friend who had a husband who was a printer provided the paper, and we only had to pay for... Well, he did the printing for nothing. We had to pay for the paper. That's what it was. Okay. Anyway, so we reprinted it another... I think we got two or two and a half thousand the next time, and that took 20 years to sell two and a half thousand. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we decided we'd have a, a, an anagama sort of kiln, so we... we changed completely and we built a, a long skinny tube and um, and the, the, you know, the conversation we had on uh, in email of a few a week ago about uh, lying on your side um, mm-hmm. trying to pack a pot um, above your head uh, somehow behind you with your elbows stuck into a sharp piece of brickwork and it's hard uh, <laughs> yeah and, I, and after I did that I had that for eight years that was the longest kiln I'd owned at that time and after the eight years, I thought, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> so I de- then that's when I decided to build this um, long-throat brewery box kiln. Mm-hmm. Because in parallel to having that kiln, I, I had a little 
fibre line chamber brewery box kiln. The plans for that are in laid-back wood firing. Okay. At a stainless steel chamber lined in ceramic fibre, and then a, a little brewery box firebox in front of it. And to, when you're working with ceramic fibre inside a stainless steel box, you can't have a common wall between the firebox and the chamber. You have to set the chamber the chamber back away from the firebox so that you don't uh, overheat the stainless steel. Mm-hmm. So the conventional way of building a kiln wouldn't work, and so I worked out a plan that had the firebox and then a, a, a throat area which was extended, and then the the, the fibre chamber, and that gave me a chance to put more pots in that in the throat area. And uh, that's when I got the idea, well, we just make the throat area a bit longer, and then another arch, another layer of bricks, extending it a brick at a time, and uh, eventually I realised it was it's so hard to get the pots in there that it was better to actually make a top-loading lid and make it so, so wide you could actually climb in there from the top. So I'd done that already, and then I thought, well, why have the chamber at all? Why not just have the firebox and then three metres gap and then the chimney? Mm-hmm. And I just put two rows of bricks on the ground, uh, just straight onto the soil, uh, single skin, dense brick, and uh, put kiln shells over the top of the lid, and then I could pack it from the top. And you get all that concentrated flame roaring down that tunnel, and it, it only took a couple of hours to pack it. And you could do it from the top and just put the kiln shells over and uh, it was a very simple kiln to pack, and I got some lovely results. And I used that then for another oh, seven years, I think. But it made some lovely things. And um, so I thought, well, that's, that was worth publishing an article about, which I did. Um, and then I went back to using a kiln most recently. I've still got the Anagama, and I, uh, but where I had that long throat kiln, I pulled it down and I put in something, um, I don't know, wait, it's just a very large chamber. It's um, about eight feet high. Wow. Seven feet high, 2.1 meters. Uh, you can walk through it very easily. It's got doors on both sides. And that's, um, I've got this plan that I might make some really large pots. So I thought, well, I have a chamber that I can walk through. And, um, and then in front of that, there's a sort of a, a teardrop-shaped bubble of a firebox and chamber combined. Uh, maybe something vaguely like they have in Bizen. So in that kiln, you're intending to make man-sized pieces, I guess. Yeah, that, that was the thinking. I haven't got around to it yet. I've been concentrating on making these, um, these porcelain pieces, that, which are actually very tiny and very precious, um, because I can't make anything bigger out of them because it's not plastic enough. But this is the this native stone, the porcelain stone I've found. Right. I want you to talk more about those. I think you called them... I, I read your article, Dirty Little Secrets, and I think that's okay. relating to these? Yes, indeed. Okay. What, oh, well, what's that no, about? I, I, well, no, Dirty Little Secrets was the article about the guanware, the black dirt okay. that I've been using. Uh, that's the most recent show. The show before that was uh, called From the Ground Up, and that's um, that's about the, the Peyton's uh, porcelain. The and I just stumbled across it by accident while I was I'm, looking. I'm sorry. Can you can you say that again? The what kind of porcelain? Uh, Beitunz. It's B A I, and then T U N Z E. Okay. Beitunz. It's a Chinese word. Means porcelain stone. Or actually, it means little white bricks. Because when they crush up the porcelain stone and wash it and get rid of the rock fragments and extract the mica, the plastic mica flux clay-like material. Mm-hmm 
for porcelain making, um, they would dry them out into little blocks and sell them as little white bricks to the potters. Okay. And so the potters saw this material coming to them as little white bricks. And so patunce is little white brick, I think, literally translated. But anyway, I, I discovered this material locally um, just looking for something else, looking for clay. And uh, I found these uh, sort of little white rock fragments and I just assumed they were sandstone because in this, just south of Sydney here, we're on the edge of the Sydney Basin and it's all sandstone. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing very much usable in sandstone <laughs> <laughs> other than the silica, which is, you know, I don't need a lot of. So... Um, I just assumed it was that. I, I couldn't believe I could, there would be such a thing as a pure porcelain body sitting on the ground waiting for me to pick it up. That just doesn't happen to people. So I just assumed that wasn't going to happen to me, and it didn't happen. And so I had this piece of rock sitting. Um, I took a sample, and I listed it and put it in my log and um, recorded it. But um, it sat on my desk for three years until I tested every other sample I had, and there was nothing else that I thought would be more profitable to chase. And one day <laughs> when I was bored, I crushed it up, and... Um, uh, milled it and um, fired it, and it, it, I t- tested it as a glaze material because it was a hard, very hard rock. Mm-hmm. And the glaze, it made a beautiful blue celadon, blue guan kind of glaze. Fantastic. And um, But it crawled, and I thought, well, if it's crawling, it must be some sort of plasticity there. And so when I got the glaze test out of the kiln, apart from being absolutely staggered and floored and surprised by this beautiful blue, um, I realized that I, I should just check and just see if it was plastic. So I got some of the powder from, that I'd bore milled. Right. I put it in my palm and added some water and rolled it around and it made a ball and then I rolled a coil and then I made a little swirl out of it and um, did a push-pull test and it was, it was almost plastic. And so mm-hmm. I stuck some on the wheel and threw a tiny bowl. I couldn't believe you could throw a bowl out of celadon uh, glaze. <laughs> but uh, I fired it and it stayed up and it was white and translucent. I just could not believe it. It was just the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in my life. It was so improbable. Anyway, it was way out in the country, I thought. But three years later, when I went back, having found it was so useful, um, I found that someone had bought the land and <laughs> put a house on it. Oh, no. <laughs> it's always the way. Um, and they weren't very interested in, uh, in me collecting that. But I found that it wasn't um, wasn't absolutely isolated. That once I started looking at the geology and wandering around, uh, I could see that there were other places where it outcropped, and so I was able mm-hmm. to collect some more from another place nearby. When I first went there, the, the local bloke there was a big farm, you know, and he was selling it off. And he, I was there, and he, he, I met him, and he said, "Oh, look, I'm I'm actually subdividing all this and selling it all off, but um, tell everybody about it." And I said, "Oh, I'm just come to look for geological samples." And he said, oh, help yourself, take whatever you like, you know, you're welcome to anything. So if only I'd tested it earlier, mm-hmm. and while he's still in the land, I could have got, you know, a truck in there and got 10 tons dug up and taken it away, and I'd have porcelain for the rest of my life. But um, right. I didn't know about it until years later, three years right. later. But at, at least you did find some, and you were able to make some beautiful things out of that. Yeah, yeah. So while I was looking for that, I'm working on that. I also came across this um, igneous dike, which is heavily weathered, and it's sort of half gravel and half clay. Um, and um, I tested some of that, and it came out absolutely jet black. And um, I knew about this years ago, at the same time as I discovered the porcelain, a similar time. 
but I didn't work on it until after I'd finished that porcelain show. It took me three years to get some really beautiful pieces for that show, for okay. the porcelain show. And um, once that was over, I then started working on this black body, which is the, the subject of the article, The Dirty Little Secrets. And um, so this black clay, I had it analyzed, and it's 20% iron oxide. And, wow. And uh, tw- 20% uh, alumina and 30% silica are the main ingredients. Um, that's a lot of flux because it's an igneous rock. It's a, like a weathered basalt or something like that. So um, I have to wash it in a lot of water and try and rinse out the kaolin particles away from the, the rock because by itself it melts. It becomes liquid. It's like a black sludge. Right. And if you wash out the, uh, the clay particles uh, in the cracks between where it's weathering, the clay is forming. And um, if I wash all that out, I get about, I think it's about 20% of, of the material that I dig up. 20% is useful clay that I wash out, and 80% I have to throw away. It's sort of like gravel and rock. And, mm. uh, but it, it is just plastic enough to throw, and it is absolutely jet black. Uh, it's, it, it makes a beautiful clay. Uh, very difficult to make anything of any size from it. This is another reason why I've never got to make this big pot for that big chamber yet, right. because three years spent working on this unthrowable porcelain and then another two years working on <laughs> hard to throw blackware. But it gives a very stunning look, the, the black body. I'm, I'm just surprised with all that iron. It doesn't just totally melt. Oh, well, it does. If you overfire it and over-reduce, particularly if you reduce it really heavily mm-hmm. for long periods of time, it turns liquid and squats. So, what? okay, so you've got to be really careful when you're firing. There's no room for error, is there? Well, I've made lots of errors, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, um, I've got photographs of whole firings that are like flat pizzas <laughs> of, of glazed clay. But um, most, I've got it working now, and uh, I'm firing it uh, at cone 5. I keep lowering the temperature. You know, when I was a kid, I used to fire to cone 11, and then it was 10, and then 9, and then 8, and then 7. It's 6 now, I'm firing, firing this at cone 5 which is only just stoneware, really. And so I started blending it now with um, a little bit of kaolin to um, make it a little bit more plastic and also to give it more resilience so I, I can fire it easier without losing it. Does it lose, but, its, uh, does it lose you, its color once you add that? Oh, well, no, there's so much iron there. It still looks black, yeah. Still, it's still, still very black. I guess if I kept on, if you bled it down to, you know, it's on adding kale, it would eventually just become dark brown and then medium brown. But um, those sort of colours, you get those colours at about 3%, 5% iron. Um, so this is still very, very dark. Do you do you glaze this body or does it... Oh, yes, yeah. Okay. yeah I glaze it um, with the glazes made from the betons, the porcelain stone. Uh, a good recipe is uh, around about uh, 15 to 17% of limestone mixed with... 85, 83% of porcelain stone, and that makes a beautiful blue glaze. And when you apply it over the uh, the black body, um, it's no longer blue in that way unless it's really, really thick. And so I, uh, there's so much iron in the body that it seeps in and you, you get temiku-looking colors. Um, so what I do is I, I mix the glaze up like whipped cream so it stands like peaks. Um, on your fingers and you can lift it that and lumps out of the bucket <laughs> and I dip the pots in that and then if you can get a thick enough coating like that um, you can actually get these beautiful powdery blue colours still and put with an, a, a black or purple iron rim 
where the wow. iron seeps through on the rims where it's um, the glaze is thinner. It gives a very rich irony rim and a very black foot um, and a, a sort of a pastel shade of, um, of glaze in between. Wow, that sounds really that sounds really nice. Now, if anybody listening to this podcast wants to try and imagine what that work looks like, they could go to the Leg Gallery site. That's L-E-G-G-E? L-E-G-G-E, yes, Leg Gallery in Sydney. And um, if they Google that, um, they'll find the Leg Gallery, and uh, I'm on the artist list, and if they click on my name, they'll take you to the last two shows, the show of Beethoven's Porcelain and also the show of um, Blackware, the, uh, the Digital Secrets Digital show. Digital Secrets, yeah. A few things that you've mentioned brought to, brought to mind something else. You've spent some time doing some research in China? Uh, yes. When I found this Beethoven's porcelain, I got interested in porcelain making, and I thought, well, you know, where did it all begin? And it began somewhere around uh, Jingdezhen in China. Mm-hmm. And um, I read uh, Gwyneth Henson Pickett's translation of um, uh, Pierre de Entreclay. I, can't, I don't know how to pronounce his name, the French Jesuit who went to China in, um, I don't know, what was it, 1100 or something like that. What's his name again? I'm not familiar. Pierre D'Entreclay. Okay. You know, Probably. Uh, Google character spelling enough to... It might, yes. <laughs> he, wrote, um, he, he wrote these letters back um, to his um, uh, sponsors in France. Okay. And uh, although he was a Jesuit, he was also very interested in pottery and he worked in the pottery areas and he he wrote back long detailed letters of the techniques they used and what the material looked like and where they found it and that's where we get these early names like um, Kaolin from it's a corruption of the Chinese word Gaoling which is the name of a, vi- of a, of a village where they mine the stuff you know he's probably so, a spy well, he was the first industrial spy that's right industrial espionage yeah and um, so uh, I thought well I'd better go and have a look and see what the original porcelain stone look like and if what I found is the same stuff uh, I can make porcelain from it I know how to use it but I just wonder if it's the same so uh, I went to Jingdezhen and um, I managed to get a, a car and a driver and a translator and a guide and we got out to um, out of town to where they were mining the, the material and I took samples of porcelain stone and uh, kaolin fragments and things and mm-hmm. went to the original m- mines that were mined back in uh, uh, Ming times um, Not I didn't get as far back as Song Dynasty but um, found places where they were mining very early and they're still wide open you can crawl in there and uh, I went in as far as I dare with my torch it was <laughs> so far in that I couldn't see daylight from the opening anymore um, I took some photographs with my little camera and took a couple of fragments the size of a, a coin and put them in uh, my plastic bag and brought them back and um, checked them against what I found here and uh, it's totally different. Really? There's no similarity at all. But it was a great experience to go and see it. And um, But what they've got there is a, a kind of mica, um, a white ferrocyte mica. And uh, it's vitreous like felspar, but it's sort of plastic like clay. Mica is a, a flat plate-like particle. If you get really fine plate-like particles, so, well, that's clay-like. And um, it's it a fascinating thing to do. Did you get enough of that material to, to, to work oh, with it, to see, see what it's like to work with? 
I, I did. I brought back uh, about three kilos. Okay. Because uh, I was flying on a plane, I couldn't carry too much. Sure. And I also had some books and things. And so besides, I, three I went kilos. Right up to my twenty kilo limit. And three kilos uh, of white powder is um, <laughs> the kind of thing that'll get you stopped at the border. <laughs> it would, yeah. No, I didn't bring back any white powder. No, okay. uh, I brought back whole rock. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, I didn't. wasn't wasn't fancying bringing back yeah, little little bags of white powder. Yeah, it would take a long time to explain that. It would. Yeah, it was just asking for trouble. So I, I just uh, thought, well, I'll bring the whole rock and I'll just have it confiscated if um, <laughs> if they want it, they can take it. You know, because there are rules about bringing soil into the country. Australia has very strict quarantine rules. Okay. Uh, but as long as it's mined more than something like six or eight meters underground. So it doesn't contain any topsoil and it's not contaminated in any way. Uh, it's legal, so I, I declared it and said what it was, and um, I gave a good wash before I brought it back, so there was nothing on it. And mm-hmm. um, and it's good hard rock from underground, and uh, yeah, they've had no question, no problems with it. Nice. And when I went studying in Japan, I also brought back clay from Japan, and as long as it was labelled um, pottery clay, I dried it all out and shipped it back. It was supposed to reduce weight. Dried it back as, sorry, sent it back. I posted it to myself, and um, sent it and declared it as pottery clay, dried pottery clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was okay too. But if I'd sent it back as um, farm soil samples, you know, <laughs> it would have been corrected for sure because um, you know foot and mouth disease or something. You know, right, right. Worried about, um, yeah, just worried about diseases and various things yeah. crossing borders, yeah. which is. I mean, it's it's a real it's realistic and it's legitimate. I can understand that. Yeah, yes, and I want to comply. I'm not trying to you know break any law. I'm happy to comply with sure. whatever's required. And so, how did how did done, I'll have a go at it. How did this um how did the porcelain that you brought back from China, you know, the real deal? How'd that feel? Uh, that was more plastic than what I'm using, but still quite short, not easy to use. Okay. Um, but what they do is they blend it uh, <clears throat> with kaolin which means it's not quite so white or translucent, but it is, um, it's much more throwable. Mm-hmm. And they have various grades. That, <coughs> pardon me, they have like a, a very white grade and then an off grade and then a slightly creamy grade. Mm-hmm. And so you, people pay for the quality they're after. Mm. So <coughs> the cheapest grade, which is a slightly yellowy, creamy color, still fires quite white and it's um, translucent. It's, it's quite throwable. It'd be like a, a normal white stoneware body would be here in Australia. Um, mm. Not, not you know, easy to throw, but <clears throat> quite throwable. So, Steve, I've called you back because in my um, engineering incompetence, I have failed to uh, record the most interesting part of our conversation. So, in the hopes that uh, we can can redo it a, at least a little bit. Um, I want to talk a bit about what we were ending with, which was your ideas on the difference between human-created pottery and machine-created pottery. So uh, I, I think what, where we were at was <clears throat> excuse me, the notion that machines can make stuff that's so much more perfect than any person can, and your idea how imperfection is the new perfection. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I so. like it. And um, I'm just developing an article now, which I'll, I'll send to you. It's, um, it's called Perfect is the New Junk. And I'm, I'm going to put that on, on my website so that uh, everybody can read it. Yeah. 
Okay. Good, thank you. Yeah. And uh, I've been thinking about this and how there was a time when uh, a craftsman would practice all his life or her life um, to become so excellent in their technique that they could make the perfect object. And people with um, education and... Um, uh, I can't think of the right word... Um, taste. Uh, it's always harder the second time around. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but people with with a, an insight into beauty and whatever would, would like to purchase items like this that were as, as close as possible to you know, perfection. And in the case of pottery, I was thinking, well, you know, people were making, say, porcelain or whatever technique, but they would Strive to be as excellent as they could achieve in their entire lifetime. They work and work at this to to get the perfect result, the best result they could do. And now, everything is uh, made by robots and uh, controlled by computers. And no one makes mistakes, or the machines that make mistakes, they just work perfectly. And so, now we have this situation, at least in the first world, where you can get a, a, a perfect dinner set for eight dollars. And it's absolutely white and um, translucent with perfect glaze fit, no crazing. It's vitreous, it's tough, it's durable. It's just excellent. And it's $8. And it no longer really has any value. Perfection has lost its value. And it's just, it's the new junk. So now when you chip a cup, you don't bother to try and replace it. You, um, you just throw out the entire dinner set. And, and while you're at it, you throw out the curtains in the kitchen and the tablecloths and the placemats. And, and you, you, you get a, a blue set next time around. And, um, and after six months of that, you're bored with it, you just chuck the whole lot out and you go yellow and you reinvent yourself. And through retail therapy, you become a new person. <laughs> retail therapy. Now, that wasn't in the last one. That's a good line. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is why I have this feeling that, yeah, this the machine-made perfection is the new junk. We don't value it anymore. It might be perfect, but it's it's still junk. It has no value. So what I'm trying to make are things that are obviously made by a human, but not in a crass kind of way. I don't want to make wobbly, sort of incompetent-looking things. I want to make beautiful things and refine things, but I I want them to have imperfections that, that I've put there. And so um, I want them to represent me and, and my interaction, my intellect interacting with my locality. Rather than imperfections, those sound more like signatures. Uh, well, the whole, the whole outcome would have my signature on it, I mm -hmm. hope. But uh, one of the, or some of the things that I'm, I'm striving for are these little scratches and nicks where there's, um, I, I, I mill up my clay bodies in different ways and I blend the different blends so that um, I get uh, coarse particles and fine particles together in the mix and uh, they leave little scratches and marks that you don't normally find. Um, they, um, I, I set them in the kiln very carefully but very carefully so that they will warp very slightly and I don't want them to be warped into an ugly way I want them to be just very very slightly not quite perfectly round mm -hmm. so it, it, they to me I say well look you know they look natural but of course they're not natural they're highly contrived but they have that 
sort of human quality of not quite perfect. Right. So, yeah, the human imperfection. So that they're flawed, just like I am. <laughs> the, you know, the, uh, the Shakespearean tragedy. Flawed, but flawed. in a in a pleasant manner. Yes. Yeah. 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 Gently. There you go. That sounds great. Mm-hmm.